have the honor of reading Ruth um, 1, 1 through 5. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elim... John? Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of the two sons were John. <laughs> Malon and Chilion. Yep. They were... Oh, good Lord. They were Ephron... John. Great, thanks. From Bethlehem, well, Judah. Not like I studied this. Yeah. <laughs> and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and when she was left with her two sons, they married Moabite women, one named Oprah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Melom and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and, and her husband. This is the word of God. Bow your heads with me. Lord, we come as always humbled in front of, of your word, seeking to learn, seeking to try and, try and figure this out, try and get this, try and know you more, try and learn from you through story, that it would, that it would, we pray that it would enter into our lives, that it would change us, that in this time that that we would be able to let go of everything else and focus so that we could hear your word, the power that your word has. I pray that it would enter into us. I pray that I would be able to do justice to it, that I would be able to, to articulate well, to guide us to the beauty of the stories that your people have written about you. In your name, amen. amen. So, uh, I am... I, excited is not a good enough word. I'm just pumped about this series. I've been, I've been reading everything I could read about Ruth. I don't know why, I've just been really excited to dive into the Old Testament again. The Old Testament is, I think, a place, a sort of stumbling block for many of us as Christians to wrestle with the Old Testament God as if it's a different God than the New Testament God. Um, and Ruth is this incredible story, this story... Uh, it's just a beautiful, beautiful story. Ruth is a story about a kindness, friendship, loyalty that transcends ethnic boundaries, that transcends racial boundaries. It's a story about widows. It's a story about care and loving kindness from people of God. It's an amazing, amazing story. And it's set in a pivotal, pivotal time. By the way, how many people know the story of Ruth? How familiar are we with the story of Ruth? I think there's, I think there's some knowledge of Ruth. And most of us grow up, here's how most of us grow up with Ruth, uh, in like Sunday school Ruth, right? Here's, here's sort of like the moral of the story of Ruth that's commonly taught, I feel like, is that it's kind of a romance. It's like the Bible's love story, right? It's, it's like we have this chance where there's Ruth and she... And Boaz, oh, Boaz. And it's just like, it's kind of portrayed in this very simplified way as this lovely little romance story. And it's really not at all. That's really not what Ruth is. It's really not a story about a man and, love, a man and woman falling in love. It's a story about two women that care so deeply about each other. It's a love story actually between Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, and Ruth. It's a story about an Israelite woman with nothing left and her daughter, who's, who's a foreigner, who's going to be an immigrant, also with nothing left, and that they stick together 
because of faith. It's an amazing story, and it's a love story, but not in the way that most of us grew up thinking of it. But it's set in a very interesting time. So I had to, I had to acquaint myself with this time. Ruth comes right after the book of Judges. And I think if there's a misunderstood book of the Bible, it's Judges. What even happens in Judges? The story of Samson is in Judges. The story of Gideon is in Judges. Judges is a time of just utter lawlessness. It's like a barbaric, dark ages of the Old Testament. In fact, the entire, the entire Middle East is kind of in this period of flux historically. We can even tell from pottery and from all of these different things that the culture of that time was going through this massive flux. There was movement. There was identity shifts between peoples. There was rulers coming and going. There was tons of war and chaos, right? So it was a, it was a time where, as it says in the last line of the book of Judges, it says, in those days Israel had no king. And everything, everyone did as they saw right in their own eyes. Anarchy, right? It's just lawlessness. And so the first line of the story of Ruth paints us a picture of where we are. And it says, in the days when the judges ruled. So even though this book is coming after the book of Judges, Ruth is sort of this four-chapter, intimate little book right after this sprawling book of Judges. It's happening within that time period. We're zooming in in the book of Judges, from, from this, this picture of Israel as a nation into one story of one family. But even, even backing out a little farther than that, where are we in Judges? What's happened to the Israelites? I think for some of us, acquainting ourselves with just the timeline of the Old Testament is important, right? What's happened? We've had seven books of the Bible before Ruth. We've had Genesis, right? The creation and the fall. We've had Abraham and God's covenant with Abraham. Right? That he would say, you, from you will come a people with a land. So God has promised, he's made a promise to Abraham. He said, I will give you a people, a nation, and a land. And then we begin to have the story of the, of the nation of Israel. They go through the exodus. They're in captivity in Egypt. They're freed, and they're going to go to the promised land of Canaan, right? And then we have the story of Joshua. Right? The Battle of Jericho. And we have this entrance into the promised land that God has given for them. And then we have this kind of hole in our thinking, in our brains of like, now they're in the promised land. Isn't everything good? Don't we just go like straight to, to King David and King Solomon and we just keep moving through the Old Testament? No, there's this period called Judges. There's this period where everything is literally falling apart in front of their eyes. Why? Why is it falling apart? Because Israel has no king and everyone just starts doing whatever they want. Whatever they well please. Even though God has given them a promised land, they have lost complete track of that promise. And so that's the setting that we begin in. We have a man named Elimelech. And Elimelech, we know, is from Bethlehem, in Judea. We know Bethlehem in Judea. We know this city, right? But we know it in a totally different context. And so here we can, we can take that line, we can stretch it back and we can say, here is also a story about Bethlehem, about a man named Elimelech. Bethlehem means house of bread. Bethlehem was, was fertile agricultural land. But the story starts with this irony that there's a famine. So we start in the book of Ruth with the central central crisis. 
is that everything that this man had, everything that he was used to in the house of bread, in a place that's fertile, in a place that's blessed, in a place that was the promised land, food is gone. Food is scarce. Crops aren't growing. And so Elimelech is faced with a choice. He's faced with a choice when in the promised land, the promise doesn't seem to be there. And Elimelech does what is sensible, right? If I, if I think, if I put myself in Elimelech's shoes and I just casually read this, I would say, Elimelech is doing a sensible thing. He can't feed his family, his wife and his two sons, so he's going to greener pastures, literally to greener pastures. He's just finding somewhere that can grow food, that can feed his family, and he's saying, I'm going to go there. That, that's one reading of this. But if you look more deeply, if you understand the context of Judges more deeply, where does he go? He goes to the country of Moab. There's not a lot of explanation here about Moab because the writer that wrote this to the Israelites much later, everybody knew about Moab, right? But we need to teach ourselves about Moab. We need to, we need to sit down and say, what is significant about the fact that Elimelech went to the land of Moab. In order to do that, we have to backtrack a little bit. We have, to, we have to sort of paint this picture. We have to understand where we are and who we're with and who we're around. We have to get a sense of this setting. And so we go to the book of Numbers. And actually, we can go all the way back to Genesis first. The, the land of Moab, the people of Moab, originated with an incestuous relationship between Abraham's nephew Lot and his daughter. Right. So it already begins. This whole land begins out of a disobedience to God's will. That's, that's the start of this nation, of this people. It's really important that we understand how these kind of nations work in the Old Testament. Right? This is not the same kind of New Testament thinking we have. God has ordained and he said, this is my people, this is my way, this is my law. And when people rebel against that, the sins of the fathers trickle down and affect thousands and millions of people. Right? And so that happens all the way back in Genesis. Speed forward to Numbers. Numbers is in the time of Moses. Right? We've got Exodus. Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Numbers is in the time of Moses, the nation of Israel. The Moabite king Balak sends Balaam on a donkey. Some of you might know this story to put a curse on Israel. So already Moab is hostile towards Israel, right? Moab hasn't just like not gotten God's blessing. They are adamantly opposed to the people of God. They're saying we want nothing to do with your God and we hate your people. Right? We spit on you. The Moabites have disowned that. They've said, we don't want that. And, but then get this. In, November, in, in Numbers 25, we see that the men of Israel have had historical problems with the Moabites. The men be, it says in, in verse 1 through 3 in Numbers 25, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to sacrifice to their gods. The people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods. So Israel yoked themselves to the Baal of these people, and the Lord's anger burned against them. So we know that Moab is probably not the place Elimelech should be going, right? It's pretty clear, and it was pretty clear to Elimelech. There's no way Elimelech did not know the stories of the Moabites. Because even in the time of Judges, if we go to Judges 3, even in the time of the Judges, it says, again, the Israelites did evil 
in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms, which is Jericho. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. So, Elimelech says, we have famine in the promised land. I don't know what to do. I think I need to go find food. I'm going to go to Moab, and I'm going to go figure this out. To the nation that literally held my nation hostage, that kept, like put us into captivity, that came and ran over us and, and exacted all of our, probably our food, and taxed us and took our things, marauders, right? I'm going to go to them. This is a little bit like, if you're familiar with the movie Schindler's List, right? This is a little bit like Schindler saying, I'm going to go make my business by selling goods to the Nazis, right? This is what Elimelech's doing. He's making a, a choice. He's saying, I need to prosper. I need to provide for my kids. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get a little me for me here, however I have to do it, right? Everything I know, every value that I've been taught, I'm, I'm going to put it aside because that God has brought famine to my land, so I'm going to go get me some food. That's the mindset of Elimelech. So can we say that Elimelech was just a wicked, evil person? No, he's not killing people. He's not, he's, he's not doing just horrible, egregious things. But in his heart is a heart of rebellion. Rebellion against God. And that's how this story starts. The story starts with an emptiness. But I want to be clear that the, the emptiness of this story is meant to lead us to a fullness. I think this is so important when we look at the Old Testament. When we, when we look through the Old Testament, we must understand that God has a people, and those people rebel against him, and constantly, constantly, he is providing pathways of grace for them. Because sometimes these people behave just so poorly. It's hard to even, like, Elimelech's name means God is king. Literally, his parents named him, and they were, they were very devout, and they thanked God by naming him. God is king. Naomi's name means pleasing. But look what he names his children, Malon and Kilion. Those names mean wasted and kaput. Literally, wasted and kaput. Like, they must have had these kids in the famine, right? I mean, we don't know. But, like, they're like, hey, instead of thanking God by naming my kid God as king, I'm going to name my kid wasted because, God, you wasted. You wasted my life and my family by bringing this famine. There is just a deep heart of bitterness in these people. Elimelech and Naomi have hearts that are bitter, and we will see that over time as the story progresses. So we begin with an emptiness and a bitterness. And I think there's no other way to understand this, to understand that it signifies a weak faith. Right? There is a weak faith. And, and judges would back this up for us. The Israelites in this time are a people that are just weak in faith. In this time of upheaval in the Middle East, in this place, in this new land, they come in and they go, God brought us to the promised land, the land of milk and honey. And they look around at all the gods that people are worshiping and all the things that they're doing and the, the, the technological innovations they have and these cultural innovations. And they go, that looks pretty good. Maybe we can still kind of have God be our God and do these other things too. And they begin to sort of erode their faith. It's just as the last line of Judges says, 
everyone began to do what they saw right in their own eyes. Don't we live in a time like the judges? Don't we live in a time where there's no real king? And our life is really about what we see doing right in our own eyes. And so what happens in this rebellion is that Elimelech takes his family to Moab and they sojourn there. The ESV says sojourn, the NIV says they went to live. They went for a while. That sojourning kind of is a, is a, brings up to me an idea of, we kind of, we're kind of vagrants. We travel here. Like people sojourn through Portland on the I-5, right? They're kind of there. They hold their signs up. They're catching a ride somewhere else. Maybe they're working for a while. People sojourn down to, to Humboldt, California, right? Before weed was legal. And they would let go and they would go down there and they would, they would work for a time, right? It's this sort of migrant idea of like, we're going to go and we have a job for a season. And so there's an idea that, that he sojourns. And he's not going to, maybe he's not sure he's going to stay there, but he's going to check it out. And so they go, and it says, they sojourn in the country of Moab. And then verse 2, the man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his sons were Malon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. And then it says, and they went to Moab and lived there, remained there. Some, some translations said, and they were there. They were just kind of there, right? Sometimes in our life, when we operate out of our senses, what's sensible, when we do the sensible thing, we find at some point in our life that we're just kind of there, right? We've done what's been told to us is the right thing to do. We've pursued the career that's sensible. We've, we've moved to the place that's sensible for our type of person. We've married the person that was sensible, Right? We've gone to the church that was sensible, moved to the neighborhood, made the friends. We've done the sensible things. And there is a certain amount of sin that we can do that is sensible sin. And what I mean about that is it's driven by our senses, right? There's a certain level of sin we do in our lives that's saying, yeah, uh, I can justify a certain level of greed because it's just sensible. It's just sensible for me to watch out for myself, right? I can justify uh, a certain level of of hoarding my own things from the poor because it's just sensible. I don't, want, I don't want my kids to be without, so I can't give that away. There's a certain sensibility that we've rationalized some of our sin away. Some of our sins of omission are just, we've said, well, they're sensible. And here's the important thing to understand in that. Where is your faith? Where is your faith in that? Where was Elimelech's faith in the promised land? Elimelech could have moved a lot of other places besides Moab. And we don't know from the text, maybe Moab was the only place, but it seems unlikely. It seems like there are other green pastures to move to. Right? But Elimelech, and, and he could have stayed put. He could have said, this is the promised land. God's going to deliver me out of this promise. My name is God is king. I'm going to worship the king and stay in his promise. But instead, he follows his senses. And so I just want to challenge us as there are parts of our lives where our sensibleness is actually weak faith. If we want to drill down on this, is our sensibleness actually weak faith? Could we be doing a faithful thing that would be less sensible, but we know is right? The Spirit has convicted us. Go and do something courageous and brave with your life. 
follow me with your life, even though following me is not sensible, right? If you went to your other Christian friends or non-Christian friends in town, there's nothing sensible about what you're doing as a Christian. It is an act of faith. And if it is sensible, I would challenge that you're not really living in faith. Like the, the witness of Elimelech in staying in the land to his kids, to his wife saying, I know God has promised this land. I mean, it's not like, it's not without context. Judges is a time where God removes and then gives back. He takes away as a way of discipline and then he gives back, right? The Israelites are put in under the king of Moab for a time, but then they're restored through a hero. So it's not, it's not as if there isn't a sense that God's going, going to provide and that our faith ought to be stronger than that, but Elimelech trusts his senses. And so there he is. And so the end, the road that Elimelech really goes on is a road to nowhere. Because it says, now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. So for all of Elimelech's sensibility, for all of his smart, rational thinking of caring for his family, he doesn't care for his family at all. In fact, his family now has to deal with his sin in an amplified way. He's now left a widow in a foreign land of people that are hostile. In a place where to raise your children to be faithful to God is going to be very difficult, right? And Malon and Kilion raised in this culture of bitterness. What do they do? They assimilate. And so first we have Elimelech who has faith in himself, and then we move to Naomi. And Naomi is really the central character of the story. And Naomi is all about faith in others, right? Because what else does she have? There's no faith that Naomi can have in herself. A widow in this time, a widow in the time of Judges, is like the most horrible role you could be in. Women were totally dependent on men in this time. And so to be a widow means the end road for you is probably prostitution. Probably. That's the only way you're going to make it on your own. And so Naomi is now completely invested in her sons, right? To, to do anything else would be, would be very hard, right? To, she, could, she could travel back to Israel. She could try to do that. But the reality is she'd be abandoning her sons who she loves. And so what she does, she says, I have my faith in these two sons and yet, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. And these sons, they marry Moabite women. And so there's just this, this erosion that happens. And to me, it, we begin with famine, but with Naomi, she's, it's, it's like following the mirage, right? Have you ever been in a place in your life where you've been, you've been doing a sensible, you've been following the mirage, and then you begin to notice it's kind of fading. And where are you? You're in the desert. You're in the desert. The thing that was in front of you isn't there anymore. It got taken away. Whether that was a job offer you thought you had, whether it was, whether it was a, a, a romance or a friendship or a dating relationship, or whether, whether it was an inheritance that you were going to come by, whatever it was in your life that was the thing that you were holding on to out there that was going to make everything worth it, it was going to make everything okay. That's what happens to Naomi, right? 
Her faith is in Elimelech. Maybe he has some way to pull our family through this. And then it disappears. She's been following the mirage. And so she's stuck. And so her sons, they marry these Moabite women, but it's interesting, like, they don't have kids for 10 years. What's going on? They're they're living in Moab, and they're just kind of living there. There's this sense that they've truly, they've truly began to take on this identity that God is gone, and we are bitter people. We're wasted, and we're just here. We're just doing it. There's a a sense that they've gone far enough now that it will cost so much to go back that they'll just stay where they are and try to make their life work, right? They're not willing to deal with the cost of what it takes to go back. And that really moves us to the crux, the crux of the story. In, in that waiting, in that following, in the yearning for something that, that's going to that's gonna work out for them, they too die. And so it's a bleak, it's such a bleak start to a beautiful story, right? Here we are with a people that were blessed as God's people, coming from Bethlehem, the house of bread. Everything's disrupted. And they make a series of choices out of a weak faith that puts them in a crisis. And so when Malon and Kilion die, here is Naomi left with two widows. And in fact, it's really interesting. In, in certain translations, the, the NIV doesn't do this. Naomi's name isn't even mentioned. Names are important in these stories. And it just says the woman was left with, without her two sons and a husband. And it's even interesting that it doesn't say the woman was left with her daughters-in-law. The woman was left without her sons and husband. Naomi is a woman without. With two daughters who are now without. And this is where God is going to enter the scene in such a big way. This is the setup for Ruth. God's power, his design is over this whole story. And even though this is just five verses here, right? It seems like not even a sermon can be taught on this. This is just like, this is just kind of sketching out the basics of where we're at. But there's something really important for us to learn. There's something really important for us to understand to frame this story, which is that Elimelech and Naomi were gambling with the divine, right? Anytime we depart from decisions of faith and God's promises and what we know we ought to be doing, we're gambling. God does not promise us opportunities for grace. We don't, we're not entitled to them. We don't deserve Jesus on the cross. We're gambling when we walk out, when we follow our sensibilities, and when we sin and we hide it. We have, some of us have secret sin where we're gambling with the divine. We have held it in for so long. We've figured out, we've compromised so much of our life, right? We've moved from the promised land to a land of compromise, where we said, well, this is just how my life has to work because I need this to work. I need this addiction for my life to work out. I need this secret sin that I keep in private because it's just the, th- it's the thing that just allows me to keep going. Life's too hard without it. 
Some of us have that. And what we need is we need an appreciation for God's power, both for God's judgment and for God's grace. And I think this is where the Old Testament is so key for us because nowhere is God's judgment louder than in the Old Testament. But some of us, here's, here's our problem with judgment and grace. Some of us have, we way overplay judgment, right? We say, well, I just hate the Old Testament because God's all about judgment and God just seems like such a mean, mean, exacting. Why would I want to worship that kind of God? We overplay his judgment and we downplay his grace, right? Some of us have that view of God of a vindictive, someone we're just afraid of. And then others of us overplay his grace and downplay his judgment, right? We say, well, well, I, just forgive me, God. I mean, I'm, I'm okay, I'll do okay. And then we just keep on doing the thing. We keep on singing, right? We have no intention. We say, God, it, why would you worship a God if he, God loves everybody, right? There's just the sense that we way overplay his grace. And we say, I deserve it. Like, God, God wouldn't be a good God unless he just forgave everything I did all the time and and like we, it's an entire, we're spoiled. We're just spoiled if we get down to it, if we view God that way. And so God says, no, you need to have a healthy understanding of my judgment and my grace. They are two sides of the same coin, right? Without my judgment and justice, grace would have no purpose. If there was no result for sin, every story, every story is a retelling of the fall. Right? Every story is a retelling of Genesis 3. Where we go, where Eve goes to the serpent and she believes the lie from the deceiver instead of the glory from the creator. In our life, so often we're, we're, we're believing the lie of the deceiver. The lie of the deceiver is God is vindictive and judgmental and he hates you. The lie of the deceiver is you can do anything because God loves you and he doesn't care, right? Like that's the lie of the deceiver. But the, but the true healthy relationship of those two things is to understand that grace has no purpose without judgment. If there were not judgment on the deceiver, on the lies, we would not have a good God. And so Ruth helps us understand that. Ruth helps us understand that God is in control. God is in control. And everything that is happening, whether it's emptiness and famine or fullness, is leading us on a road home. It's leading us to a road to redemption. Megan was sharing with me a, a post of a, a friend of ours that's a Christian, and I loved this. She said, it came down to this crux in the garden that only God can create. Satan can't create anything, right? He can't create anything. Only God can create. God is in control. All Satan can do is distort all of the creation to whisper those lies into us so that we would not trust the creator. Another, another way to look at this is that Everything that happens in our life, if God is in control, right? If God is in control in this time of Ruth, then the famine is a test. The famine is a test for a man or a woman of God. What are they going to do in faith with that circumstance? But here's what Satan does. He introduces temptation. 
So the struggles in your life are tests from God, and Satan introduces temptation. He says, I'm going to take that crisis and that decision, and I'm going to put a few little lies in there for you. I'm going to say, yeah, but God's mean. He shouldn't be creating a famine for you. You deserve better. Go and get it. Well, I'm like, go and get what you need. Because you have a horrible God that he would give you a famine in your promised land. You see that slight turn of a test? That the fruit of a test is godly character. And we will see in Ruth the incredible results of the test of both a man and a woman who decided, I will have godly character. Or you can have the temptation that is introduced when you take that test and you say, I'm going to follow the deceiver. I'm going to follow the person who has no power to create, whose life is full of bitterness, and who is lying to me that they have the answer. And I want, I want us to let us take this, this judgment, this grace, this testing, and over the next, four, the next four weeks when we review this, this story, I want us to let us lead, the, lead us to the cross. I want us to see how every story in the Old Testament points to Christ. Ruth is an interesting book because if we zoom out again on this intimate story, right, we're back out in Ruth in the context of the Bible, we see Judges is coming before it, 1 Samuel is coming after it. What happens in 1 and 2 Samuel and then 1 and 2 Kings Ruth leads us. The story of Ruth is going to lead us to a king. It's going to lead us to a king for the nation of Israel. To the most stability Israel will have. A time of fruitfulness for them. But more importantly than that, at the end of this story, we will be led to a forever king. Not just for the nation of Israel, but for all people. For Ruth the Moabite. For us. We will be led, not just from an earthly king, but to a divine king. So going on to verse 6, I'm going to give us just a little sneak peek. Here's our cliffhanger, right? When Naomi heard in Moab, in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. So this is a story about a homecoming, about a return to the promised land. And I want us to remember that in all of God's judgment, in all of the things where we look around and we say, this life is too hard and I can't believe in a God who would create this, to know that in all of those crises, God is paving a path home for us. He had his son die on the cross for us to open up the opportunity for grace, a gift, not something we deserve, not something we're entitled to. We can't wait on it. We can't gamble with it. We need to take it. We need to begin to live a life of faith. God uses emptiness to reveal and transform. Right? He uses this emptiness to reveal our heart. Because in emptiness, the emptiness of famine for Elimelech, presented his true ambitions. What does the emptiness in your life present? What are the ambitions that bubble up? Where are you taking temptation 
instead of holding fast in the test? Have you left or are considering leaving the promised land for a compromise? Are there places where you're just saying, God, it's too hard? Everywhere around me, I see people doing the sensible thing. I would urge you to keep your feet planted in faith. And do you struggle with God's wrath or with his grace? Do you struggle with that? I would urge you to read Ruth and see the tremendous grace that God has in store for us. Let's pray. Lord, as always, we're excited to dig into your word, but we're challenged by it. I pray over this next month that you would give us ears to hear your word, that you would give us the capacity to feel the truth that your spirit has in store for us as we read this, as we listen, that it would open our hearts, that we would be changed, that in the centrality of your word, that there would be transformation in us, God, so that we may be your people in this city. Pray these things in your name. Amen.